Warning. The Kingdom Cast podcast contains spoilers about comic books, movies, and entertainment in general, as well as anything else that crosses their minds. Please do not take any medical advice seriously, nor legal advice that they may or may not give out. For that matter, it's probably for the best that you take nothing that they say seriously. And we now resume our regular programming with Kingdom Casts for the week of December 2nd, 2020. Because you demanded it. Back with us again is Sandra Deep Blue Sea Swindle. (laughs) I'm Stan Daniel. With me, as always, is Albert Marsh. So, Albert. Yeah. We've got a few random emails and questions here and there over Messenger and Gmail asking us to qualify what we think is going on with DC, given that DC put the Future State preview book out last week in stores. Do you care to take a guess at this? (laughs) Now, what's the question? It's what's going on with DC. What do we actually think is going on with DC? Because we've reported on this. We've reported on that. The last thing we reported on was, um, I'll go ahead and say his name, Ethan Van Skyver's self-serving rumor that DC Comics was off the shelves as of June, which we know is not true. But given that they released the advertisement for Future State last week in stores and online and everywhere else, people are asking, what, what are they doing? What are all these new characters? I thought 5G was canceled. What becomes of DC Comics in January when Future State comes up? Well, well that's just the two-month thing. That's I don't Well, it, it is I, just... I mean, some of that's going to stick around. Or mm. They're going to do something else with some of those characters that, are, that get popular. But I mean, that's just a, a two-month event thing. Future State is just a two-month event thing. And again, we've, we've compared it to Shonen Jump so far as the format goes. You've got one main story in a book, and then you've got two backup stories. We're both inclined, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Albert, but I believe we are both inclined to believe that that format is going to stick around after a future state. I would imagine they would try to make it work. Yeah. DC Comics is not going to disappear off the shelves in June, but they're going to be substantially fewer in number as the year goes on, with DC Comics splitting its effort between the comic books on the stand, again, the Shonen Jump-like books with a main say, Batman story with a backup feature with Robin, and then another backup feature with Batgirl, and the online comics is where this all seems to be headed. I thought Future State was them trying to rescue whatever they had already done on 5G and and use it. It looks that way. Okay. Yeah, the some that way. Yeah, it seems future like to me they just it. sort of reworked 5G and like, hey, we've already put the effort into some of this, so we'll just go ahead and do it. What it says to me is it buys them more time. Yeah, but they're going to do it as an Elseworld, an event one-off thing, as opposed to we're going to run with this for an undetermined amount in the future, which 5G, I think, was initially yeah. the premise. What we're getting is that at one point in the little advertisement, they number the characters on the cover and then they list who they are. And there seems to be a lot of blowback about that. Like, why do I need something to tell me who in the hell Superman is or Batman is. So it's not being received favorably, but this is where AT&T Warner is going with DC Comics at this moment. And again, it could be worse. And I do not, 
at all think that DC Comics is going to vanish from the stands in June, like the rumor monger started a little while back. I just don't think there's going to be as many of them. Yeah, what they really want is for you to pay as much attention to the online comics as you do the comics on the stand. Yeah, I think there's going to be a reduction in the line. Yeah, especially when you look at this week and what you got and the quality of what you got and how they feel. But there's also a reduction in the line with Marvel. The difference is, is that 95% of the Marvel fans will not even be able to tell you which comic books got canceled. Yeah. And we all know when Marvel reduces their line, they're really just lying. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's I mean, they're lying. It They've done it for years. They're like, oh, we're going to cut down on these X books and do this, do that. And, they're in there. and for the most part, when you look at the numbers, they're just lying to you. Well, they and then, well and then they'll, they'll compensate by having more. I was trying to, because it's been so long. I almost said deviant covers, variant covers. <laughs> covers. New from yeah. Marvel Comics, deviant covers. <laughs> that's right. Well, we're going to get deviant covers once I get the Eternals book going. I mean, we yeah, have well, 40, 40 covers for the Eternals number one. <laughs> yeah, they got to really make it look like people actually are going to buy that book. So uh, they got well, to add them numbers. I'm definitely going to be buying that book, but 40 covers is just crazy. <laughs> God. Yeah, well, it's it's crazy for any book. What was the who holds the ultimate number of variant covers so far? Is it still Star Wars? I don't know. I know Star Wars had a lot. It's tough to approach Star Wars once you do the final count on them. If you take everything into consideration, the dynamic forces, all the different damn dynamic forces covers, all the specialty shop covers. I'm going to give a shout out to something for y'all to watch, for everybody listening to me to watch. It's on Amazon Prime, and it's called The Goes Wrong Show. Goes Wrong Show? Yes, I am now kissing up to everybody that has emailed me about my hatred for Are You Being Served on PBS, which apparently has a damn cult following over here. It's great. Not great. (laughs) (laughs) It absolutely sucks. It is the most boring thing. I would rather watch a documentary on dairy manufacturing than Are You Being Served. Or some horrible Z-rated movie about a guy that is actually Jesus in a cabin. <laughs> Can you? Yeah, we got. Hey, that was actually that is actually a great movie, and I oh I, I don't know what, what is this Amazon show you're talking about. It's called The Goes Wrong Show, and it I'm bringing. Horrible. Have you seen it? I don't have to see it. It sounds terrible. Oh, no, 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 no. It absolutely... You see, I I was under the same impression, but I can't believe that we got as much, if not a little bit more, blowback from people chastising me for me not liking Are You Being Served than we did for you making that crack about Star Trek fans being old. (laughs) The Goes Wrong Show is a BBC show. The setup is very straightforward. Once a week, this theater group does a play live on television and in front of a studio audience. And systematically, everything that could possibly go wrong with the props and everything else in the play goes wrong, and they just have to brave through it. When I read the premise, I thought, well, by telling me the premise, doesn't that just kind of kill the comedy in it? And the answer is absolutely not. I haven't laughed as hard at something as I have the goes wrong show as I have anything else in a very, very long time. There's like six episodes of it, and it came out in 2019. There's supposed to be a season two, but the last episode is the Christmas episode. I am here to tell you that is the funniest damn thing I think I may have ever seen on television. You lost me the moment you said BBC. 
<laughs> I'm I'm telling you, man, it's it's outstandingly funny. I I mean, it's way funnier than are you being served. I'm sorry. I, you can send all the emails you want. I'm just never going to see that as funny. I did. Have you watched watch. Possum on Amazon Prime yet? I haven't watched Possum. Then I'm on not Amazon. watching this. Well, I'll watch Possum. <laughs> I'll watch Possum. I just haven't got around to it yet. I've got it saved on my watch list. I just haven't sat through it yet. He's too busy watching Going Wrong. Going Under? No, the, Going the goes Going Under. Going Down? Going Under. <laughs> over. Are you being served? It, no, it's The Goes Wrong Show. Goes Wrong Show, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. And then there was somebody that also recommended, look, if you didn't like Are You Being Served, I know a BBC show you'll like. It's called Naked Attraction, and it's on Channel 4 in Britain. There's just no way. Nobody is streaming it over here, and I'm just not. I saw a couple of advertisement clips of it after the individual recommended it, and um, no, I don't think I'm sitting through that. What is it? Naked attraction and Are they basically just naked people. That's it. It's a dating show. It's like The Bachelor or something along those oh my lines, gosh. except they come out completely naked on on both sides, and then they make their judgment calls. That's all I can gather from the commercials. The commercials I saw were completely. How is that? How is that anyway possibly related to Are You Being Served, which is a classic? Well, okay, I got to tell you, if somebody put a gun to my head and said, sit through all of Are You Being Served or sit through Naked Attraction, guess which one I'm going for? It. <laughs> I'm naked right now. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> all right. What is wrong with you, Albert? Isn't it freezing over there? I've been like. Four layers of clothing with a blankie. I'm in a, I'm in a house with a heater. What? Well, I, I, have, not, I mean, I mean, I, I got central I'm, air. I'm not that backwoods. I, I'm not in a house with with a heat, so maybe that's part of it. But still, it's so hot. It's so cold. God. I we wore shorts got, today. <laughs> we actually got a little snow over here. I know. I saw that on the on the news that y'all got some snow. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't anything to write home about, just enough to cause about 78 wreck. <laughs> DC Comics. Albert, we got to talk, man. About what? Hey, I, I want to know why AT&T Warner is not paying Alex Ross and Mark Wade for use of their costuming, their storylines, and everything else from Kingdom Come. Maybe they are. They're not. No. Not according to Alex Ross and yeah, Mark they don't, Wade. Yeah, they don't. They don't have to. Apparently, oh. you know, it ain't. It ain't like the Disney thing where they just won't pay that guy who wrote the Star Wars stuff. Oh, the Disney thing that you haven't read the contract to that you don't know that Disney is obligated to pay to. But in the past, yeah. they did set up a precedent. AT and T Warner did set up a precedent in the past that they do have to pay Alex Ross and Mark Wade by giving them indeterminate bonuses for they use of the to characters. Do anything if it's not written on, written down. I, I'm willing to bet if that was taken to a court of law showing in the past where they did get bonuses for use of that material, that the court would rule that they did have to pay it having setting having set up that precedent in the past. Hmm. No, I would guarantee you that the the way that the checks and everything are paid out, that it probably gives them out on that somehow. Oh, I think you think that it gives them an out because their name's not Disney. 
Well, Disney owes that guy money like that, you know. When Disney took over the property, Disney did not set up a precedent of having paid him before. And I'm willing to bet that there's a loophole in that contract that says they don't have to pay him now. Whereas Warner Brothers has paid Alex Ross and poor Mark Wade before and should continue to pay them. Poor I just Mark think Wade? Poor little Mark Wade. Out there in the woods, all by himself, his shoes has holes in them. And and the temperature has dropped, too, so now he's cold. You know, poor old Alex Ross, who can sell Batman sketched on a napkin for $2,000. That's neither here nor there, my friend. I'm just pointing out a little bit of something. What's it? There's a word for what that is that's running rampant in this country right now. What is that word? It's, oh, wait, it's hypocrisy. What are you all about? <laughs> I'm just being an ass. Anyway, DC Comics for this week. Whatever. Okay, let's start off with Batman number 104, written by James Tynan IV. Various artists on it, and it shows. There's about three or four different artists on this. And Albert, could you tell a difference in the art? I mean, it was it more off to you? It oh, just, God, it was, it, it was obvious. It rushed, right? Uh, depends on, on what pages it was. The art just really, really has dropped off the last couple of issues here. It kind of feels like this entire issue, though, was unneeded background information on Ghostmaker from Nightwing and Batgirl or Barbara Gordon. I th- well, I think what it was, he wanted to put in the effort to fill in the gaps. Yeah. Well, why didn't Dick ever beat him? And Dick's like, yeah, I saw him one time. And then they referenced uh, Batman Incorporated, that era. Like I said, mostly this issue was just... Just him going back and just sort of putting ghosts where he would fit better continuity-wise. Establishing him in history. I didn't yeah. feel that we needed that as much. That's something that we could have picked up later, if at all. It just feels to me like the whole issue, again, was buying time. Yeah, probably by design. It comes right up to being interesting, but it doesn't actually accomplish it to me. When we start off, I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting because we've got Harley helpless against clown killer, Batman trying to appeal to his morality. And so I thought, okay, this could be interesting, but we didn't get to it. We immediately went to the Barbara Gordon, Dick Grayson stuff with the flashbacks. The art was really messy, though, all the way through, some places more so than the others. Yeah, I mean, it was obvious when the artists changed up. And some of them were like even the ones that weren't necessarily messy. Yeah. It was real lack of detail. I still love Tynan. I mean, Tynan's a great writer. I'm just, I think that he's at cross purposes here with Batman right now because he'll have a really good issue and then we'll have an issue like this. We think he's found his footing and he probably has found his footing, but somebody may be telling him, look, this has got to run X number of issues long. You do a filler book or something. I gave the writing a three, the art a two, and the dynamic a one. My score on Batman one four sadly was two. I gave the writing a three or a two and dynamic a two. Yeah, you gave it a two point seven. We've been told the title was Bat and Cat, but the cover of the book actually says Batman and Catwoman, number one, writer Tom King, artist Clayman. Tom King is trying to continue his Batman run which it's pretty much been spelled out. Everybody in outside circles has whispered it pretty loudly. His Batman run was ended quickly because the book was nosediving, interest was waning, and the story was just not going anywhere. Then they brought Tynan into it on the regular Batman title. This was a disoriented mess. 
from the first page on. King thinks of himself as some sort of master storyteller. To me, he's much closer to a rambling four-year-old taking an hour and a half to explain the 20-minute episode of Paw Patrol they just watched. I didn't think that the book had the depth of character nor the complex storytelling of Paw Patrol either. Well, the art's very good, but the art's completely wasted. Apparently, I, I'm some, the art. Uh, I really liked art. I don't know. I don't know what Tom. I think Tom King is like some oddball. No, he's not oddball. He's just horrible. <laughs> he keeps wanting to leave his mark on this character to the point where he views himself as Frank Miller or something. I don't know. And this is just more of that nonsense. He wants to be Frank Miller level, and he's never going to be it. This wasn't even a Batman book. Once you read it and you get through it and you think about it, I think Batman had maybe five or six lines in it, and it was Catwoman. And you're jumping around in different time periods. Catwoman's in all of the time periods, but Batman's not. And as if all of that wasn't bad enough, he goes out and he steals a character that was created by far better talents, and he appropriates that character into his ego-driven cacophony of batshit that really only a lackluster CIA spook could think was readable. I do not like him playing with Phantasm. We've gone God knows how many years without Phantasm in the standard Batman comic book. There is just no need for it. Phantasm worked well in the movie, in the animated movie, and as a one-off that we never saw again. She is an excellent character, but she worked primarily for that movie. And it seems like he's just going back, grabbing whatever he can to try to appropriate under his name and his bat legacy, quote unquote. He's not going to be remembered as one of not the great fondly. Bat. No, no, he's he's not. But they, well, think about it. Think about bad Batman writers in the past. Do you actually remember them? No, no, not really. You know, you don't even remember. No, uh, but all those, all those Catwoman, Batman, fan chippers and crap ain't ever going to let this junk die. And they're going to harass any writer on Twitter that dares have Batman have a relationship with someone that's not Catwoman. Oh, they're going to let that die. They're just one-offs. That's one generation. This is not going to be a thing. By the time 20-year-olds get to be my age, it's not going to be a thing with Batman if there even is a Batman comic going on at that time. I got to give it to King in this. Essentially, Warner Brothers is paying him to vomit. And I don't know how he worked that deal out, but they continue to do so. Even when Bendis seems to be getting knocked off of everything except for Legion of Superheroes. Well, that's in um, anyway. Well, it's continuing through the future state situation. Oh, I thought it was going to end. Yeah, well, the standard book is going to end, but there's Legion of Superheroes, a few more issues that Bendis is continuing in the future state situation. This is not worth your money, and it's not just because I personally don't like Tom King. This is a bad book. The art was okay. I didn't think the art was spectacular, but the art was better than it is in the standard Batman title this week. I gave the writing a one, the art a three, the dynamic a one. My score was 1.7. Well, I gave the writing a dynamical one, but I gave the art a four. I thought the art was very, very good. Didn't Tom King say that he thought this was his dark night? Tom King's I've heard him say that a couple of times. <laughs> Tom King is, is, a, is a jackass as far as it comes to his writing. Well, I, a I don't think there has ever been a writer that writes Batman that's so horribly unprofessional when he's in uniform. I think it's fair to say he's a jackass in reality, too, given uh, the situation with him trying to get that artist canceled unnecessarily. Also, Brevroot 
calling him out over Twitter. So he writes Batman with no professionalism, who carries zero responsibility toward Gotham at all. He just... I kind of felt that as a writer, he's... I don't want to say deconstruct even. I think he, he wants to concentrate on the wounded side of these characters. I personally did not recognize Scott Frey in his Mr. Miracle. Mr. Miracle is a great book till you get to the last issue and then he didn't end it. That just wasn't Barda and Mr. Scott. Mer- and Scott that I have grown up reading. I didn't care for that. It's more like He's looking at what other writers have done, and he's mimicking that in a way that he is convincing himself is completely and utterly his own, except he's not following through with it. He's not able to deliver that final punch. He's not able to end it with an exclamation point. Ahoy Comics, happy hour number two, Peter Milligan, writer, art by Michael Montanay. It probably made a much better pitch than it does an actual comic, Albert. What do you think? I don't even know if I go that far with it. It didn't work just enough to make it a bad comic. Yeah, I was optimistic on issue number one, but issue by the time we get to issue number two, the whole storyline, a surreal world where happiness is mandatory in America. While I thought the first issue was intriguing, by the end of the second issue, it, it wore really thin. There are several prominent questions, at least a few prominent questions that needed to be answered in this issue that weren't. It wasn't enough for me to continue my suspension of disbelief over this. I think it was a good pitch idea on the surface, but once you move past the initial concept, there's not much to be had there. We ran out of air quickly on this one, is my opinion. Yeah, it seemed like they needed to explain maybe just a little bit more to make it work. Or establish a little bit more world building or something. We needed more than what we were getting from it. For instance, Undiscovered Country has a similar vein, a very vaguely similar vein to the concept this comic book is based off of. Undiscovered Country is way over the top, but they offer enough explanation each issue that you're able to nod your head and continue with your suspension of disbelief in it, even though Undiscovered Country is asking way more of you than Happy Hour is. It makes sense, I suppose. I understand where when Peter Milligan, noted comic book scribe Peter Milligan, walks in and does this pitch, you think, okay, all right, go for it. But maybe you should have asked for a couple of scripts first. Yeah, like the, yes. the, him doing the pitch is fine because it's Milligan and you know what he's about, but the execution ain't quite there. That's right. Peter Milligan's famous for ecstatics and several other comics, independent comics. So when he pitches something, you're definitely going to want to hear it. But again, I was optimistic on number one, but number two just kind of took the wind out of my sails. I still give the writing a three. The dialogue was good. The angst of the characters came through well. The art was a three, but the dynamic was a one. My score on Happy Hour 2 is 2.3. I think I just gave it straight twos. I mean, it could change. There might be enough in issue three to sort of... Yeah, I'm going to give know, it another issue. Yeah, I'm just sort not. of the get it up there, but it ain't there in issue one or two. Dark Horse, Spy Island number four. Writers Chelsea Kane and Leah Meidernick. Art by Leah Meidernick and Elise McCall. I've changed my mind on this. This I may be the most to say, important. Y'all owe me an apology. This was an awesome issue. <laughs> No, it's still a crappy comic. Oh, no! (laughs) I feel that this may be the most important literary work of our time. (laughs) This comic instantly fails because there's mimes on page one explaining the story. Oh, my God, that was so wonderful. I thought that was the best recap ever. 
Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> no, that scene with her and her mime father, the narration box says, for once in his life, my father has nothing to say and her father is a mime. <laughs> this book is clearly genius. You just have to expose yourself to four issues of it in order to turn enough of your brain to toilet cleaning gel in order to come to the conclusion that William Shakespeare has nothing on these bitches. <laughs> Buy 10 copies of each issue and stare at them repeatedly until you understand it. <laughs> I just laughed and laughed when I read this last issue. I, I, I don't even know if it had much to do with the other issues. It was oh. just hilarious. The dog, the poor Corgi. <laughs> swimming under the water how in the hell did they get him under the water <laughs> oh my gosh and then like well you can't talk underwater and then they had the little american sign language yeah <laughs> caption oh my gosh it was awesome yeah, this, it was awesome i don't know what the intent of this book was i probably never will <laughs> But I've read four issues of it, and I don't know what, what else you can say about this book. I really don't know. Where do you go from here? <laughs> uh, well, thankfully, this is the last issue, right? The, the trash can, obviously. Oh, my well, God. I mean, Albert, this was hilarious. Did you not laugh at all at this issue? No, no, none of this is funny. Not in a good way. Oh, <laughs> man. I thought the the mimes were funny. <laughs> the mime, that recap of all, I, yeah, I have slogged, not slogged through, but I mean, I've seen maybe one or two good recap pages, but this is like the best recap page ever. Yeah, I've got to hand it to the first page. That was, yeah. I thought, well, I don't understand any of this. I don't know why it exists, but clearly I'm not smart enough for it and I'm willing to acquiesce to that. <laughs> <laughs> I, not I'm smart even, enough for it. <laughs> I would even dare you say that you could, constantly too. <laughs> I would dare say that you could just read this last issue and be amused, wouldn't you say? Last issue in context of the previous three issues was amusing. Okay. okay. Yeah, I don't know if you could pick this issue up by itself and laugh at it, and <laughs> I'll never know that. <laughs> what about those sand fleas with their scuba deer? <laughs> Well, let's start with Albert. Albert, what's your rating on Spy Island? I give the writing a one, the art a one, but I gave the dynamic a five, so yeah. figure that out. Yeah. Sandra? I am going to just have to give this issue all fives because, like I said, I was just laughing all the way through. Okay, and my rating for the entire book is pie. <laughs> That's 3.14 and work the rest out for yourself. <laughs> Spy Island, it's over, and I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> Image Comics. That Texas Blood, number six, ends the first chapter in the book. Writer Chris Condon, artist Jacob Phillips. I think it's movie-worthy material. I thought it was sad, poetic, engaging, grounded, very grounded, and something that could actually go down. And when I was reading this, I thought it was the end of the series, but this is an ongoing series. I got to tell you, if it ended here... This was a, I don't want to say good ending has an happy ending or what. I'd rather say this was a solid land for this story, a solid ending for this story. I mean, it's fine. I don't think it ever really caught on with me too much, though. You never seemed to have the enthusiasm for it that I did. This did not live up to its initial its Well, initial it's not over yet. <laughs> I know that, but I thought there was going to be a little more quirky to it. Now it's just very depressing. 
Okay, and I'm going to make this argument too. I agree with you. It's a depressing ending, but it was a solid ending for the first story arc and for the story in general, I felt. Not all endings are going to be upbeat or happy or Hollywood endings. This was just a dark comic to start with. It was very grounded. It was unusually grounded. The fact that they were able to pull it off in comic book format, I think that's a testament to their talent. There were no over-the-top badasses. It was just people dealing with people. And in this case, people dealing with very evil people. I didn't mind that it was dark, but I did mind that at the beginning, it was more of a weird, not weird, like a quirky thing, like Fargo. And that well, the just kind of got came- out 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 the window. Well, the quirkiness came from the sheriff. His character didn't change. He just didn't go over the top. The focus moved off of him. Well, yeah, because it's focusing on the brothers. He was there to move it along and give you a different point of view Uh as a story. Now that I know it's a continuing book, that does change my score a little bit, but I was very favorable toward it. My overall score for the first chapter was a 3.7. I think the trade paperback is definitely worth a buy, especially now and that it's an ongoing, especially now that I know it's an ongoing, I would suggest the first trade paperback on it. If you like this genre, I would suggest this. I think it worked well for this type of book, the kind of Texas pulp thing. I'm going to say straight threes. Straight threes? I think and that's, that's only because of, of personal preference, because this is not the genre that I like. If you like this genre, it's fours, four plus probably. I gave the writing and art a three, but I gave the dynamic a two. Would you recommend the trade paperback? No, I wouldn't. Disney Plus has a new Marvel series. The thing I really like about Disney Plus is they've got an infinite amount of programming that occurs in-house. They are really big into showing you behind the scenes on some things. They've got a wonderful show on Imagineering that ran for about six episodes for its first season. Also on the National Geographic side of Disney Plus, they've got an outstanding show that's all about Animal Kingdom, about taking care of the animals, how they maintain them, how Animal Kingdom is not a zoo and so on and so forth. So recently, they've kind of expanded that out. They've went into the Marvel segment and they've come up with something called Marvel 616. Of course, the 616 is, if you're a big comic book fan, you know 616 means the in comic book continuity of Marvel comic. But I guess what they're using 616 for is to mean more like insider info because they've got several different little episodes in it dealing with different things. And there's one episode called The Marvel Method. I kind of think, or I kind of get the impression that if they had it to do over again, they probably would have followed Donny Cates around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but as it is, they follow Dan Slot around at the beginning of his starting Iron Man 2020, which the three of us have reviewed on here a couple of times. And it was, is abysmal failure too strong to Albert? It's pretty bad. 
let's just remember it was so bad that you were hailing Chris Cantwell's Iron Man as the Messiah. <laughs> yeah, and, and I and I and I've retracted since then. But they swept that under the carpet pretty damn fast. They uh, Iron Man twenty twenty. Yeah, Iron Man twenty twenty. Yeah, but that's they, every that's every Marvel or DC book. A new writer comes on, and why does anything before that new writer matter anymore? It doesn't. So we just ignore it all. Well, the other thing is it hit during the, the pandemic, too. That's a poor excuse for this being a bad book. Iron Man 2020 should have been something. They had this one shot at it. Dan Slott himself says it in the Marvel 616 episode. You get one shot to do Iron Man 2020. And when he said it, and I thought, yeah, and you f- that up, didn't you? They were trying to explore the Marvel method. And Tom Braverut was throughout the episode as well, talking that Dan is one of the few that still uses the Marvel method. I didn't get the sense that Dan was using the Marvel method as much as he was coming up with random ideas and everybody else was having to flesh them out. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. It, it, it really did come off more as a uh, maybe a deadline thing. It seemed like that's what it was. It could also be more than that. It, it sort of came off as more of a, like he had a good idea, but once it came down the writing dialogue, it was just a writer's block and he couldn't move past it. So somebody else would take over from there. Well, you see, he kept saying, this is how Stan and Jack, and, and no, n- no, it's not. Even when they show you the flashbacks to Stan, Steve, and Jack, and John, Stan wrote the damn dialogue. He came up with the plot. He wrote the dialogue. Jack or the artist, whatever artist he was working with, would add what they wanted to to it. He did a lot more work than what we see Dan Slott do over the course of this. And then at the end of it, Dan ends up in the comic book shop signing his name to all those comics for people coming in. I believe what happened in production, they said, who wants to do this? And nobody's hand went up. And then Dan Slott's hand went up. Now I didn't get that feeling. I get the feeling that Dan Slot was picked because he's one of the few guys that does do the Marvel method. And he'd been there forever. I don't think he volunteered because, my God, why would you want to volunteer to say, tell everybody that you can't make a deadline and you're hanging out your collaborators and other people have to pick up the ball to get you over the, the goal line? He didn't know that was going to happen. Keep in mind, they're not filming this like we're watching it. They're filming it over the course of creating this. They had no idea this was going to happen. None of them. Yeah, and that could be a lot more film that's just other episodes down the line. Once they filmed a bunch of stuff, they sort of just chopped it up and be like, well, here's the Dan Slot thing, and then we can go do something else. There's other stuff. Yeah, this will cover one episode because if you watch Tom Breverett, he's not not exactly jumping up and down about Dan's progress because the cameras are there. They've committed themselves to this. You want to put your best foot forward because it's Mm -hmm. Disney Plus. It's the mother company that has sent these cameras down to film a day in the life of. I wish I did not know this about Dan Slott is, I think, what this boils down to. You got to understand, for those of you out there that haven't seen the episode, the episode is edited in the most... What would you say? Not romantically, but in the most, in the nicest way possible. Yeah, yeah. It's not like they they don't. This is not a gotcha. No. Or it's they, just, they didn't intend here's, for it. The, here's the process of how this issue or comment got made. There's plenty of other stuff out there on Stan and Jack and Claremont and Byrne and several of the other creators from the past that shows that what we got with Dan Slott, that's not 
traditionally how the Marvel method works. I, I hated to see it. I was kind of back and forth on Dan Slott anyway, but I'll never be able to. The next issue of Fantastic Four that comes out, I'm going to have an idea in my mind how this book got done. It's not going to be by Dan Slott. Yeah, but Dan Slott doesn't have a co-writer on Fantastic Four. Well, not one that's credited. No, no. If he had a co-writer, they'd be credited. I think I'll so. confirm on Fred. Do you not remember our friend that used to shop at Kingdom? He pitched an entire year of Jonah Hex in six pages, and they wrote him a check for it, but his name doesn't go on anything? Well, that may have been his deal. It could have been his deal, but also I guarantee you that those assistant editors sitting around there, I'm willing to bet they do a lot of word fill. I, and I'm not it. saying, it, re- really I'm not saying in the do. same way the letterer does. That poor litterer. Did y'all not feel bad for him? God, yes. Like yeah, because he, he seemed like, like, I got two days to do an issue. Like, yeah. He's got two days to do an issue, and then he might have 15 minutes to do the edits that get yeah. handed to him. I mean, I'm, just, not, I'm not here sending emails being like, hey, y'all, y'all got anything for me to do? <laughs> 15, uh-huh, 15 minutes before deadline. Right. He's sitting at his computer waiting for that. Yeah, and this is why... Whenever these quote unquote discussions pop up online about who's more important in the comic book, the writer or the artist, I'm like, dude, don't even start. Don't even start. I mean, good God almighty. There's a lot of heavy lifting done by the artist. Maybe I'm not remembering correctly, but to me, it seemed like people followed artists rather than writers. But now at Marvel, it seems all about the writers. I just don't see that as an equal thing. A lot of artists, Marvel and DC both, they try to get them on the cheap. Yeah. That's why you have a lot of non-American artists, because you you can pay them way cheaper than you can an American artist a lot of Uh times, unless it's a known artist. Yeah, overseas talent, talent from the Philippines, talents from Mexico and so on. They they work for way cheaper than... Arthur Adams does. Let's not compare him to Arthur Adams. I mean, because Art Adams, that guy puts well, a lot of time into each panel. Well, Stegman's, Stegman's American. I'm sure they, he gets paid more than Ryan Stegman. Pete Woods on this episode, the artist oh, cow, on that yeah. first episode. Albert, do you remember me asking with the first art? And I think, Sandra, this is before you joined us on Kingdom Casts. When the first art for Iron Man 2020 came out, I asked, what in the hell is going on with the cogs on Iron Man 2020 shoulders? Mm-hmm. Because in the past, they were reasonable. You could see how somebody's arms could work in that. But damn, this first issue came out. And those cogs were ridiculous. Well, in Marvel 616, we learn what happened. We learned this by kind of reading in between the lines. There's a little spot where Pete Woods throws a design at Dan Slott for the Iron Man 2020 costume updated. And he doesn't have any cogs on his shoulders, but rather black and white connectors underneath the armor that you can see, which Mm -hmm. is a cool Iron Man design, but doesn't scream Iron Man 2020 to me. Slott said, and I just told him, no, one of the identifiers for Iron Man 2020 are the cogs. Except I don't think that Dan Slott sounded all that friendly when he shot that back to Pete Woods. As you watch it, Pete Woods' response is, you want cogs, (laughs) And instead, you get these giant, well, you've seen them. They just look 
ridiculous. But Dan Slott has a has a point. I mean, no, I am, I'm I, with if you. you're going to do I Iron Man 2020, you got to have Cog on his costume. And I completely agree with that. I just don't think it went down like they said it went down because all of his designs were reasonable up to that. Mm-hmm. And you do see some designs in the background later of much more manageable cogs over his shoulders. I really do bet they wish they had gone back and followed Hickman or somebody else over the course of that episode. Well, then they'd have to change the whole <laughs> premise of Here's, the episode. <laughs> sit here and write and watch how, how Hickman writes 15 books at once. And then we put other authors names. <laughs> oh my God. With, Hickman, with Hickman, it would be like, Come into the room, and then there would be, you know, those serial killer hunting movies where there's map on the wall, and there's pins, and there's strings going all over the place. Who there's is Pepe Sylvia? Over here. <laughs> Who is? <laughs> that was good. Here's a picture of Wolverine's lightsaber claws with an X over them. <laughs> and Hickman, uh, yeah. like, explains everything like he's Kaiser Sose or something. <laughs> Yeah. And you see him walk down the hall and his limp magically goes away. <laughs> I think they just picked the wrong guy for this. No, well, I, I, I in reality it was, did. but the, the episode in reality seemed like they wanted to find some way to show the classic Marvel method. Yeah. Yeah. That and slots the it. They even said slots the only one that does anything like that anymore because everything's got to be approved through editors and committee and stuff like that. Slots the last person to do that. Yeah. Well, I kind of see why slots the last person to do that. In fact, I'm not going to say I don't think. I'm going to say I know that's not the actual Marvel method. I've watched the old films of Stan and Jack and Stan and Steve. Like I said, it's Stan putting the damn word balloons in. He's writing the dialogue to it. He he does a layout, hands it over. Jack comes back with something, adds whatever he wants to it. Stan incorporates it into the script, and then he writes the dialogue boxes and the word balloons. That's not what we saw went down here. Well, no, um, because Dan Slott has, has, has had a serious deadline writer's block issue. There's somebody that used to come into the store. They had information on what was going on at Marvel at the time. And this was at the time that Axel Alonso was Marvel's editor. One of their little anecdotes that they once mentioned, and this is before Slot took over Amazing Spider-Man, was Axel Alonso had laid it out for Dan Slott that look, the reason you're not on a major book is because you can't adhere to deadlines. Prove to me over She-Hulk that you can adhere to deadlines and I'll put you on a damn major book. Then after She-Hulk, boom, he's on Amazing Spider-Man. He was on Amazing Spider-Man, as they say in that episode, for 10 years. Also, remember when he was first started Amazing, that was when they did Brand New Day and everything. You had rotating creative teams. Then it just sort of went into just slot and slot put out a lot of he was still putting out multiple. That book. Yeah, they, mm-hmm. even when it was just him, they were still multiple issues a month he was putting out. And that was under Axel Alonso. One of the things that we had learned about Axel Alonso that was not just common knowledge to everybody out there is Axel was a damn good editor. He was a stickler for getting the work out on time to the point that he would embarrass the talent in public at conventions if they were two or three pages behind on something. And remember, I remember one blow up. It was an artist that was behind the deadline on a book and was asking for extra time. 
And the next thing Axel Alonso knows is this guy is on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram or something or the other posting all the commissions he was drawn in that extra time he asked for to finish mm-hmm. the book. Cause yeah. I think he went to a con or something and it was like, he Axel confronted him publicly at a convention, got up from the Marvel station, walked across the artist alley and slammed stuff down on his desk. The story goes that Axel confronted him there and the guy got back up and ran up to his room and, and did nothing but work on those pages. Well, he needed to. That were due because, for Marvel. Yeah. But at the same time, that you know, back back there in that era, it was still, they were letting Mark Miller run everything late. Yeah. yeah I mean, civil, how late the Civil War get? And it screwed up the whole line when that book got late. Mm-hmm. They had to stall. Other books had to be made late because of it. I recall a few filler books here and there. Yeah, but I'm going to say it. There's a difference between Mark Miller and Dan Slott. Mark Miller ultimately delivers. As is the case with Iron Man 2020, it's ultimately completely forgettable. There was not even a good Iron Man 2020 story in it. He was more concerned about the talking cat than he was any other character in it. If you follow Dan Slott on Twitter, you know that the vast majority of his time during the day is on Twitter and online because he's constantly handing out opinions, except when he has to cancel his Twitter account temporarily and then come back to it. I'm blocked by him. I'm sure a lot of people are blocked by him. Well, I don't know why I'm blocked by him because I never had any type of any type of back and forth or, or said anything bad about him. I joked. I, I'm just blocked from him. I don't. I don't know why. It is preemptive for this episode of the podcast. <laughs> What it is, I'll just say his name and we'll move on from from it. I actually follow Van Skyver on Twitter. Yeah. They keep up with some of that stuff. So, Mm -hmm. like, Dan Slott could just use a bot that says, hey, if anyone follows Van Skyver, automatically block them or something like that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you do because I don't follow. Yeah. But that is a smart thing for you to do because every now and again, he vomits ignorance up. And But, yeah, I could see him doing that. And, you know, at the beginning of that whole Big brouhaha over the internet with comics and Van Skyver and all. Dan Slott was somewhat active in that until somebody said, shut it down to him on his part. He's not the first comic book writer slash artist that has been told by whatever company they're working for or contracted with at the time, shut it down, get off. Rightfully so. I don't know how I'd feel about John Byrne and Chris Claremont if Twitter existed when I was 13 years old. I'm not sure I'd want to know. I follow tons of creators. Some of them are very, very active. Like Gail Simone's probably more active than any of them. Uh, Eric Larson's very active. They don't don't really get into it much with anybody. They're just, Eric Larson is sort of just whatever thing he's thinking, where Gail Simone's more of a, she actually tries to interact or or do something. And respond. Yeah. Yeah, she's very good at it. She's very good at it, and she's non-confrontational at it. But also, Gail Simone, this kind of like has always struck me because I follow Gail Simone, too. It always kind of struck me as Gail Simone looks at this as kind of a writer's exercise. Yeah, it's just something to get her going and have a little bit of dialogue here and there in the process. As a general rule, because of what we've witnessed happen time and time again over Twitter, I just do not care for Twitter's format. There's something that seems to be fundamentally poisonous about it if you're not exceptionally careful. And Gail Simone is one of the few that can just navigate it expertly. In Syphilis terms, Twitter's, the way it works, it makes being mean way too easy. 
Yeah, I saw Neil Gaiman had responded to somebody somewhere one time, and they said, are you being sarcastic? And Neil said, let me make something clear. When I'm using Twitter or social media, I am never being sarcastic because it does not come across as sarcasm. Yeah. And he's right about that because you you can't do that. And a lot of people don't understand that. And a lot of people end up blocked by Dan Slott, Rob Liefeld, and several other creators. Well, let's let's be... <laughs> Let's be, let's be fair here about Dan Slott. I am sure that when he he did and he mentions it in this episode when he killed off Peter and replaced him with Doc Ock. Lord have mercy! I would not even go online if I did something like that to a to to some to, to a major Marvel character like Spider Man. I mean, Peter. I'm sure he caught hell for that. What you see on that episode when they're responding to him replacing Spider-Man with Doc Ock and Superior Spider-Man is, I'll never read another Marvel comic again. You've run Spider-Man for me. Mm -hmm. And I think one comment said, I hate you. Mm-hmm. What actually happened was there was real death threats. They were far worse than the commentary yeah. that was shown on the episode. On the other side of that, whenever somebody made that argument online, Dan Slott would slam into him and say, no, he's dead. I've killed him. Yeah, that didn't help either. (laughs) Dan was getting that high off of screwing with people like that, whereas it would have been much more powerful had you just shut up, let the story play out where they didn't know one way or the other. He caught a lot of heck for it, but then he actually engaged with fans and that, that didn't work out at all. No. No, I don't think, unless you're Gil Simone, unless you're, yeah, you know, I want to say Rob Liefeld does it okay, but he runs off the rails too sometimes a, a good bit. So he's got his sycophants that either love him or hate him, but either way, they're still following him and trying to interact with him. And I don't think that's a good methodology, but you've got to step carefully on that. And I actually think creator interaction with the fans across social media is a very dangerous thing. If I was on a major book, if I was on Iron Man or something or or Spider-Man or something along those lines, or if I were doing something that was affecting thousands of fans across the board for any property whatsoever, my social media would be non-existence or limited to pictures of my dog. <laughs> yeah. That's the only smart way I could think to pull that off. But in conclusion, it's worth watching. Marvel 616, all of it is, in my opinion. That one episode in particular, The Marvel Method, is worth watching, just maybe not for the reasons that they wanted it to be worth watching for. <laughs> yeah. If you're thinking about breaking into co- into Marvel Comics, if you want to write Marvel Comics, you're not going to get into it being Dan Slott. Christos Gage, on the other hand, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, clearly, Christos Gage is, you know, come in and fix it. He does not have any qualms about that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And that's who you want. You want somebody like that standby, ready, capable of picking up the keyboard and going into it head first. X Factor number five by Leah Williams, art by David Baldion. Well, I guess we now resume our regular programming for the X-Books. X-Factor picks right up where it left off dealing not only with the dystopian Mojo World situation, but realization that the mutants killed in Otherworld do not renew correctly. Rebirth, I guess, is you think that's a better word than renew, rebirth? They're not exactly reincarnated. 
that and resurrection I wouldn't use. So rebirth is probably the, or reborn to, or to okay. some extent. Yeah. The mutants that were killed in Otherworld during Ten of Swords, they're not being rebirthed correctly under the five. Their personalities are, are completely gone. They can bring them back physically, but as we're learning with Rock Slide, not quite right. I enjoy this. I feel like more and more that Leah Williams is writing the five as a backup storyline in X-Factor. I'm very curious. I'd like to see more interaction of the five mutants as they bring back uh, the other mutants that have died and such like this, because there's a lot of questions there. And so far, they've been handling them well. I thought it was... Nice character interaction overall. I love Jean-Paul and Jean-Marie, North Star and his sister, so I like seeing them back and normal as they originally appeared in that same dynamic. So I'm enjoying the character interaction. I thought it was a fun overall book. I think Leah Williams and David Baldion are doing a great job in it. I gave it fours across the board. Yeah, this issue has been the the best one to me. I I think as it's going on, it's sort of, I guess it's got its footing better, I suppose. But I gave the writing a four and art dynamic a three. It came out of Ten of Swords in a better situation. They used this issue to explain a few things, and now we're ready to continue forward. So we both kind of like this book. You seem to like it a little better than you did the previous issue. Yeah. While we're on X-Books, Hellions, number seven, by writer Zeb Wells and art by Steven Segovia. Man, the way they use Sinister to throw shade at the lack of thought that went into some of the 90 characters is just absolutely hilarious. That line he gave Nanny, didn't you have an egg-shaped ship as well? Well, that just seems like someone throwing shit at a wall to see what <laughs> sticks, but I digress. <laughs> Did Simonson not make her, make Nanny? Walter Simonson, it seems like they showed up. Uh, Nanny Were they first not showed... from X-Factor? Her and Orphan Maker, aren't they all from X-Factor originally? They're in X-Factor a lot, but I, I can't recall if they showed up in X-Men first. They had a bit to do with Storm's resurrection from the first Jim Lee drawn yeah. issue of Uncanny X-Men, but I don't think they showed up there. They've always been weird characters. I think we're finally getting some definition to them as well. well we don't know anything about Orphan Maker at all. His name is Peter, and he's got some crazy power that no one wants to see anything done with it because apparently it'll kill everybody or some mess. Yeah. Or some apocalypse-level crap. I don't, we don't know. Yeah, Xavier even orders that they can't allow his mutant gene to come to full fruition. So they just don't bring him back. Yeah. No, the whole point of this issue is they're going after Nanny's ship to retrieve elements to make armor. For Peter, yeah. so they can bring him back. This book has done a couple of things. I'm actually interested in Nanny, and I never thought I'd say that. Also, Sinister. I was pulling comic books off of the newsstand back during the Mutant Massacre and the introduction of Sinister. At first, I thought, oh, he's a cool new villain, but after a few issues, I just didn't give a damn about him. I didn't like him at all. He wasn't doing it for me. But Ever since Hickman kind of rewrote the baseline of his character in Secret Wars, damn, he is a great villain. He is really, really awesome. Part of it is because he's batshit insane. Yeah. (laughs) And we also learn in this issue what he's got over Psylocke, Quanin, that brings her to his side. And mm-hmm. all of it. So we see that. Hey, what did you think about the fact that Nanny and Wildchild were killed in a caro and that affected their rebirth? What did it do to Nanny? Did it just make her more aggressive or something? Yeah, she is. She's, well, first off, her little shell is 
much more aggressive looking. Yeah. She's not running her mouth as much. And when she says something, it speaks directly to what's going on. And the first thing she spoke was that rhyme when Sinister was like, well, none of us were expecting that. (laughs) It's done something and you see what it's done to Wild Child. It's just when you read it or when you talk about it like this, it doesn't make as much sense as when you watch them on the comic book page. Yeah. The way they're drawn and the way they're handled. Yeah, Wild Child's different, too. I think maybe they draw him a little bit bigger. Yeah, he he is a bit bigger, and he's walking upright. Yeah. They're both supposed to be the apex of what they are to begin with, and they're definitely more aggressive. That's interesting that the reincarnation from the deaths that occurred in Nakaro have an impact as well. Cameron Hodge back too. Eventually, Cameron Hodge was going to show up. He's, it's just I, like I guess he still has the phalanx stuff in him, but he's not that that horrible design from the nineties yet. Because I don't remember the last time he showed up. It was in the three hundreds of Uncanny X Men that we last saw him, somewhere in the three hundred range. They brought him back, and that's kind of apropos given who they're dealing with with Nanny and Peter. Also, just like X-Factor, I gave this one fours across the board. I'm I'm intrigued. I'm drawn in. I'm still loving the X-Books. Yeah, this one I gave fours. Excellent. <laughs> Get it? Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Continuing with Marvel Comics for this week, there's a vulture alert out. We're going to do this one real quick. Daredevil number 25, writer Chip Zdarsky and art by Marco Cicetta. This is a vulture alert. They're already selling for a hundred bucks on eBay. Don't buy into it. They're going to reprint it. How many sold that much? I don't know. I just saw the news article before we started podcasting and then I checked it and I saw two of them that had gone for $99. Lord. Yeah. These people Uh, know Electra already exists, right? Yeah. That's the whole problem with it. The whole reason this book is going for what it does is, again, spoiler alert, Elektra is taking over as Daredevil while Matt serves his prison sentence for manslaughter. She's doing this in order to prove herself to Matt that he might work with her to destroy the hand once and for all and to show that she can be compassionate and not kill everybody in her path. And as a result, she's got a Daredevil costume on. I'm confused about the Daredevil costume so far as inside continuity goes, outside of continuity, oh, look, new statue, new action figure. Inside continuity, maybe you could justify people just prefer seeing somebody that looks like Daredevil jumping around Hell's Kitchen. But then that begs the question, how many people in the general public know that Elektra is a assassin, a killer, or that she even exists. So there's a couple of problems there. But overall, Chip Zdarsky's done a wonderful job with this book. It's very underrated. It's a very stout Marvel book. It's a very good Marvel book. But don't pay $100 for this issue. The market's going to dive on it once the new comes off of it, and you're going to be able to pick up a second printing of it because nobody ordered enough of it, and the vultures have already swooped into the stores and grabbed all the copies they could. All because so, Bleeding Cool pulled a leaked lizard. It, yeah, leaked it two or three days before it hits the stands, and that's poor. I don't want to call well, it journalism it so much because leak. it's so I, far from I, I, I really do. think what Bleeding Cool does, they do the same thing that Wizard did back in the day. They've got buddies that run their own comic book stores or something. So any book that they can talk about how hot it's going to be a day or two before it hits when no one can do anything about orders, they do it 
and then their buddies at the comic book stores know they're going to do it beforehand, and and they've already hooked them up. Yeah, they've yeah they've already got their eBay accounts going. With that That's stuff like on it. Yeah, you remember nobody knew about Captain America's death in issue number twenty five of Captain America way back when they had maintained that they had kept it a secret. Fortunately, we had Jason, and Jason had prognosticated that this was going to happen. So he had upped the orders for us for Kingdom. But the moment we got the books in and opened up the box and started putting them on the stands and in the pull list, they were already graded, which is supposed to take at least two or three days, graded and slabbed on the Wizard World eBay store left and right. So it's this little underhanded insider trading stuff that kind of goes on in comics. It's poor choice for a comic news site, and I use that term very loosely with Bleeding Cool, to post spoilers and stuff like this. They could say, look, heads up, something's going to happen in Daredevil 25 you're going to want to be aware of. Well, it's, without it's, the headline the of no, it's the headline of, well, nobody ordered enough. Yeah. But Scramble for it. They could have did that same headline for that last issue of Atlantis Attacks and got the same response out of it. And it would have been true, too. Nobody ordered enough of Atlantis Attacks. It's just that, eh. <laughs> so anyway, there's your vulture alert. Atlantis Attacks, issue number five, writer Greg Pack and artist Anandito. This is the last issue of this, Sandra? Yes. Well, what'd you think? (laughs) This is one that got hit by the pandemic. The storyline got a little bit disrupted, shall I say, and got disrupted enough that they kind of rewrote the ending. Well, the ending, the last couple pages to say that it was going to be a tie-in to King and Black, but it's not really. Um, well, that's it. The cover says King and Black on it, and nowhere mm-hmm. throughout the entire book is there any King and Black stuff. Well, the last two pages. Yeah, and that's just hard. a lead into that Namor one-off yeah. thing or whatever. Maybe a lead into that. I don't I don't know. I mean, basically, it just shows the agents of Atlas and, and the Atlanteans fighting the symbiote dragons. Apparently, the ancient dragons know about it, which that I guess makes sense. I've been kind of iffy about this book all along. As a Namer fan, this is not a Namer book, despite it called Atlantis no. Attacks. It's an Agents of Atlas book. They have Namor there as a counterpoint to the Agents of Atlas. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's supposed to be the the super bad adversary. And to be fair, Pack does give him some time to to shine. But the book is about the agents of Atlas. The story is about Amadeus Cho. So he's an adversary, but we don't really see that much. You know, it's not written to make Namor look good or it's not even. And I'm not saying that every book has to be that way, but it's not written where it's going to advance Namor's story. Let's put it that way. Or Namer's characterization. But what really irritated the heck out of me, of course, was the wave, this new character, Wave, which, again, it's a case of, to really show you how awesome this character is, we have to have Namer and the Atlanteans all kowtowing to her. I'm like, please, this character is supposed to solve all the problems that Atlantis has with her dragon. And then a generations long feud, which I thought was building up. to I mean, this has been building up over not just this Agents of Atlas miniseries, but the one before that and two other series with these mermaids called Serena's. And then it, it, it just kind of like peters out to, oh, well, yeah, sure. We could be peaceful, I guess, because now I know I can trust you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what does yeah. that even, you know? 
I'm not sure what Greg Pak's angle on this whole thing was, other than I do believe what you said last episode or the episode before last, that this was just a way to finish out the agents of Atlas Run. They wanted to push like Swordmaster and Arrow. So like, here, Greg Pak, you can do it and you can write, you can just make it an agents of Atlas thing. He's like, sure. Okay, whatever. And that's probably as literally as far as the pitch and everything went. They also said, well, we want an all Asian team. And he said, yeah, I'll do it with agents of Atlas. They got kind of relegated to the same role that Namor did, which the original agents of Atlas shunted to the side or kind of reduced to the, let's make the all Asian team look good. I've got a lot of questions about this, like, and I've said them before, but there, and there's no use in really repeating them all ad nauseum, but part and parcel of the whole thing is what the hell is Silk doing there other than she fills out the Asianic roster? Yeah, that's it. I don't like that. I don't like... Shang-Chi? Why is Shang-Chi underwater? What the heck is Shang-Chi going to do underwater? Like, none of his martial... How is his martial arts going to work in basically a zero-G... He has no leverage. He can't... There's no kung fu moves that are going to work underwater it just it's aqua food it just makes no sense to put him underwater it was horrible that was horrible this is again a case of it's a little bit by the numbers it's old school if you're interested in seeing an asian team these characters they don't get a chance to shine so that's fine it's just that since well, that's, my favorite you see, character. now I'm going to make the I'm going to make the argument that these characters do get a damn chance to shine until somebody ruins them. It's not enough that Amadeus Cho was this brilliant young kid. We had to turn him into a Hulk, but Amadeus Cho had this book with Hercules, and that was just outstanding. And when Amadeus Cho was in Hulk, that was outstanding. Same thing with Silk. The appearances in Silk, and not just the first appearance, but the appearances of Silk and Amazing Spider-Man, those back issues are being sought out now. That's not just because Silk is a potential movie character that is going to show up in Spider-Verse 2 or what have you, but it's also because Silk and Peter Parker were entertaining together. Two of those characters came out of the those two Chinese books, the books aimed at the Chinese market. Arrow, the Arrow and, and yeah. Swordmaster, yeah. Japan yeah, denied they can do Swordmaster that just seems like a name that would already be copyrighted the hell and back at some point. Or maybe it's one of those names that can't be copyrighted. Yeah, maybe it's public domain somewhere or somewhere. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Swordmaster seems like such a generic name that at some point someone's used that in the past. I gave the writing a two. I love Greg Pak, but the writing was forced in the areas where you said, Sandra, all the Atlanteans had to kowtow to wave. It just seemed like forced writing in some places. So I gave the writing a two. The art, I gave a three. The dynamic, I gave a one. So my score for the book overall was two, and it's not necessarily something I'd recommend picking up and trade. It depends on what you're looking for. But yeah, but what are you looking for if this is the book you pick up? If you're looking for Asian, like an, an all Asian team, then this is your book. <laughs> if it um, didn't have Namor in it, would you have picked it up? No, probably not. Okay. There you go. That's what we're getting at. That's the reason they put Namor in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we joke about this a lot, about how Sandra's the only Namor fan out there, but that's not true. There are plenty of Namor fans out there, and they do pick up books that simply have Namor in them. Namor was in there to boost sales and to play these other characters against. Yeah, Greg Pack didn't do a bad job with Namor. There was some actually some pretty good scenes in there. No, Namor sounded like Namor. Well, what was your score on the book? Yeah, I'd go with twos. Overall, I gave the whole menu straight twos. 
Thor number 10, writer Donnie Cates, art by Nick Klein, continuing the return of Donald Blake. Man, this is what will keep superhero comics alive. This, Immortal Hulk, Hickman's X-Books, all of them show a depth of understanding and appreciation of character while at the same time being able to actually move the characters into uncharted territory, ultimately where they're having to face themselves, their past sins and such, in a way that we haven't been privy to before. Donny Cates is easily one of the new masters of comics. Marvel would do well to laud him accordingly. Of course, I think that about Al Ewing and, of course, Hickman as well. To me, Thor is a must-read book. You're doing yourself a disservice if you're not reading it. Yeah, this so far, this has been like the best thing I've read this week. Even the, better than your pick of the week? Yeah. I love this. I really did. Donald Blake taking on the Asgardians uh, out for vengeance and that quiet, discerning smile he has. Donny Cates has outdone himself. Yeah, I don't know how they're, what they're going to do with this, though. I mean, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing when you can't really guess it. But there, there's a lot going on with Donald Blake here. So, Well, Donny Cates has also said that Odin is not dead. Odin is still out there. I'm kind of wondering because is Donald Blake, is the score he needs to settle with Thor or is it with Odin? I would imagine he'd be more pissed off at Odin than Thor, but Thor would probably be part of that, too. Yeah, I'm sure. Unless, you, unless ultimately, on some level, he considers Thor just just dude. part of Odin's machinations as anybody else. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Thor, Thor had no idea about the functionality or what happened to Donald Blake, or even that Donald Blake existed in and of himself as a conscious individual. Yeah. So Thor had no idea about any of that. Odin knew about all of it. Uh, it just hats off to Donny Cates. He's he's knocking it out of the park. And Nick Klein's art is just perfect for this book. So I gave the score fives across the board on Thor. Like you, I think it's my favorite book of the week. Yeah, I give it uh, straight fives easily. To close out Marvel Comics this week, we've got King in Black number one, written by Donny Cates and art by Ryan Stegman. Well, this is it. We have been building to this for about three years now, haven't we? If not longer. Most, if not all his Venom stuff, for the most part. You know you've got a great story and a great twist when people like Peter David come in and are able to go back to one of the Marvel Spotlight issues from years and years ago and take a character that was a one-off and illustrate that, look, this was Null. This has been going on for years in the Marvel Universe, even before Venom showed up. That's what Peter David did with Symbiote's issue recently, and that adds even more depth to this. It feels like they've got better grounding for the entire story, given that, and given what I understand Kurt Busiak will be doing with the Namor comic, King and Black Namor comic book that comes out next week, because Kurt Busiak and Peter David, I understand it, are in a little bit of a competition to one-up each other over this. It speaks volumes when you've got creators like Busiak and Peter David wanting to jump on and help you and provide background for you in these situations. Donny Cates is just that type of a writer. Everybody wants to play in his sandbox. It's a pretty solid issue. Did the Celestials ever do anything outside of show up and lose? You've got two and, choices. Century's the same way. Century's turned into like Worf for yeah. next gen. How like a bad guy would show up and beat up Worf and everyone would be like, oh, God, he beat up Worf. Sentry's turned into the same thing. Well, that he's, was... he's there to get beat up at the front of the episode so everyone can give a crap about this villain for an hour. But you still got to admit, he did a lot before he got torn up. Who, Sentry? 
Yeah, he took out the Celestials. I didn't do. I mean, yeah, but they're just there to start with. They didn't do nothing anyway. <laughs> if two well, losers, if two, if you got a loser fighting a loser, they either come out a tie or someone wins. I'm sorry. I just felt that was poetic justice, what's happened to Sentry. He is not a favorite character of mine. And after what he did to Ares, yeah, I'm fine with that. That was like did 10 like- years ago, Sandra. I- <laughs> <laughs> what? I was about to say, what has made you think that I don't remember stuff from 10 years ago when it's a grudge? (laughs) Well, you see, what what I took away more from the Sentry situation inside of King and Black was the fact that the Void is part of Null. Null is the Void, and the Sentry was just another portal for him. You know, it's been over 10 years since I've had a Namer book. That's not my takeaway from it. My takeaway was from The Void. It's kind of like that line from Elric where at the end of the series, the sword says, no, I was always more evil than you, Elric. The fact that The Void was supposed to be evil, but no, this thing is is really evil. The Void was just minor. Well, no, I, didn't, not, you I know, didn't get that he was had anything to do with the symbiote. I took it like that because Peter David had worked in a situation from a Marvel comic way back when, which one of our contributors alerted me to, had used it in Symbiote Spider-Man two weeks ago to say this one-off Shadow King-type character, that's part of Null as well. I think Donnie Cates is taking certain outlying situations in the Marvel Universe, what he can without taking every little thing, but taking things that, look, there's a basis for this and we can connect this to Null. So the void makes sense. The void has essentially been the same thing. There's just a giant tentacly black thing that reaches out from the century when he loses control. I just kind of took it as, let's take care of the century in this situation as well. I think Donnie Cates was trying to get all of this out of the way. We've got very few avenues left to deal with Null. Two of those avenues are, of course, the Silver Surfer and Thor, neither of which have shown up in this, both of which have connections to Null. It'd be funny if it turned out Null was weak to church bells like Venom was. The symbiote is what was like. Oh, we just we got church bells and sonic guns. Well, that would mean Banshee and Siren could beat them. (laughs) The hero of King and Black would be Banshee. (laughs) Yeah, and somewhere in there, I'm sure Noel will get the Infinity Gauntlet and Aquaman's Trident. Well, Aquaman's Trident. (laughs) (laughs) If Aquaman's Trident ends up in the Marvel Universe, they'll make better use of it than the Legion of Superheroes has. Overall, I felt that this is what an event should be. This was the first issue to an actual event. I thought it was awesome scenes. I thought great characters, powerful lines. You can feel the desperation coming from Captain America and the Avengers. Forget the damn plant people from Empire. The King in Black brings the big event feel to it, and it promises even more. I gave the writing a five. I gave the art a four. The art fits it but gets a little schizophrenic here and there, like when Tony opens his mouth. And I gave the dynamic a five. So my score for it was 4.7. Wow. I just give it straight fours, I guess. Straight wow. fours from you? Yeah. No. <laughs> oh, keep in mind, Sandra, this event is the reason you're getting a Namor book. Well, I don't care if this is the reason I'm getting a Namor book. <laughs> the art was a little bit too stylized for my taste, but that's just a personal opinion. And I'm going to give kudos to Donnie Cates to not spend 
four issues out of six building up to this point. He just leaps you right in there to like, all right, let's get this well, thing this rolling. Event, this event's uh, been building for three years. Well, I, I haven't been paying attention to that. I just think that there's a little bit too much jobbing going on in this book. And it's definitely a 90s book. That's for sure. I'll give the writing a three, the art a three, and the dynamic a, a two. How about that? You gave it a 2.7. All right. It's much better than Empire. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. easily. Hey, which is worse, Go Empire ahead. or Atlantis Attacks? Empire. Atlantis Attacks is just bland. Empire is kind of insulting. Atlantis Attacks is kind of like that Endless Winter thing. It's a standard miniseries No, tale. I wouldn't even go that far. I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in uh, Endless Winter than I am Atlantis Attacks. Uh, well, At least Endless Winter I, and, has Batman in a coat. And besides that, point well, to any... Show me in that book where Atlantis actually attacked. You've got four or five attack. people... They attacked in either four or three. Remember, they got, they got time zapped. Atlantis Attacks was just kind of bland, but... Empire was insulting, in my opinion. I didn't care for Empire. And that rounds out the comic books for this week. Is there any news? You know, other than AT&T Warner refusing to pay Alex Ross and Mark Wade their due. Mm. (laughs) They don't pay me no money, and I don't get mad at them. (laughs) And Wonder Woman 84 coming out Christmas on HBO Max. Hey, the Nicole Kidman thing, The Undoing, wrapped up on HBO Max. And you know we're bored when we're talking about this, but uh, did it meet your expectations? I know you said last time that it just went crazy batshit. No, no. When you do a miniseries of this, even if it's a one-season thing, you're going to have to have some type of a big twist or something toward the end. And this really didn't. This story and everything would have worked good as a movie. Yeah. But as a television show, there's nothing extra toward the final act to do anything with it. There was no big twist or reveal. There was the the, the hammer thing, but that didn't really do I mean, that really wasn't much anything there anyway. I honestly think the whole thing was primarily there just to showcase the act. Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant, and Donald Sutherland. Yeah. Donald Sutherland, every time Donald Sutherland spoke, he got an outstanding line. He, he did a fantastic job. I don't really care much for awards on this stuff. Yeah. Oscars or Emmys or Golden Globes. But he did a good enough job to get nominated, probably. Best supporting actor, easily. Yeah. Sandra, you get HBO Max, don't you? But I, I have initially to catch got... up on The Mandalorian. With, yeah, we'd appreciate uh, that. We've gotten emails about that. <laughs> yeah, with the big reveal there. But uh, the biggest news, I guess, which is not actually comic related, is that David Prowse died. Yeah, David Prowse passed away. That's yeah. a shame. Mm-hmm. That's a shame. But he, he had a he had a good long life. I mean, I didn't realize he was that old. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wasn't David Prowse in the documentary about the bodybuilders that basically ended up being a showcase for Arnold Schwarzenegger's rise? I don't know. He was, in, he was in Clockwork he was in Orange. Yeah, Stay Hungry. Yeah, I think he was. I've seen that a couple of times. I think David Prowse was in there, uh, along with Lou Ferrigno. When I watched that, I was absolutely amazed because Schwarzenegger... Everybody that does a Schwarzenegger impersonation makes him sound dumb and so on and so on. And that man is anything but stupid. 
No, when Arnold you watch that, if if you want to see Arnold the person, yeah. when you watch that, at no point in time is Arnold not the smartest guy in the room by at least the mile, country mile. Oh, God, yeah. He's yeah, the always stuff, the smartest guy in the room. The mental warfare that he pulls on Ferrigno, the other body lifters. Yeah, but David Prowse was in it. Sandra, have you never seen that? They Hungry? Yeah. I'm sure I've seen it, but I don't remember much of it. I was going to say, anybody that thinks that Schwarzenegger is dumb... It, He's not paying attention. <laughs> no, clear. Well, I mean, we've got this. We've got a caricature of him out there. For years, the Simpsons have riffed on him and everybody, when he became the governor, and they were all doing But uh, yes, Schwarzenegger is a intellect to be reckoned with, especially if you go back and you watch that documentary from the late 70s, early 80s, Stay Hungry, and you watch it in the context of everything he's done now. You're just kind of left there with your jaw hanging. He's an unbelievable persona. And I know we started off talking about David Prowse passing, but David Prowse was a, a, a pretty decent guy. He always seemed nice at the conventions. Yeah. I don't think he was in Stay Hungry. Let me try, I'm trying to find the IM. I, I swear I think he was. I know Ferrigno was. And I know there was two or three other recognizables. He was lifelong friends with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno. I'm not seeing. Let me check the. Because yeah, there's pictures were, of him. Yeah. Yeah. I keep thinking it was like 78. I think that was filmed in Birmingham, wasn't it? No. Uh, no. That was Hercules in New York. That was filmed in Birmingham. I think. Look, uh, they did something in Birmingham. No, he's not in Stay Hungry. Oh, he's not? Okay. So I just. Uh, but he, but he knew something. them. He knew them through the bodybuilding circuit. Yeah. Are either of you going to watch or planning to watch The Stewardess with Kaylee Cuoco? No. I think you need to watch the first three episodes. I think you both need to watch the first three episodes. Really? Yeah. It's actually, well, what we were complaining about with The Undoing with Nicole Kidman was a a wonderful showcase for the actors, but not much of a storyline, not much of a twist. And like Albert said, maybe if you condensed it down to a two-hour movie, it would have been more intriguing or drawn you in. But I, I wouldn't see it becoming necessarily the most talked about movie ever. The first three episodes that HBO Max posted of Kaylee Cuoco and The Stewardess, really pretty good. You've got a slow 20 minutes in the first episode, and then it really takes off. The awkward situations in it, coupled with the seriousness of the situation, which they don't undermine or don't underplay for comedic effect, I think this really does have potential. At least I enjoyed the first three episodes, and I'm not necessarily a Kaylee Kawako fan. I admire her success. Like we were saying about Schwarzenegger, you know, she's not necessarily somebody you would think of that has business savvy, but she does have a lot of business savvy to her. So I admire that about her more than I admire the fact that she was on Big Bang Theory. Hmm. Also, Hercules in New York, I don't think was filmed in New York no, Stay Hungry was filmed in Birmingham. Alabama. I have a teacher that I have a teacher that was in one of those for like yeah. a half a second. Right. The director decides to throw in random things just for the sheer fun. A car race with nineteen seventy Monte Carlo shooting through the streets of Birmingham, Alabama. That's uh, Jeff Bridges and Sally Field. Right. A whole crew of seventies bodybuilders running through the city streets and posing on top of buses. One of the locations they say is in the country club, okay. but I don't know if that's true, but Okay, Apparently, okay, they were downtown not, filming, too. Okay, that is not what I'm talking about. You're not talking about that? No, no. That that did not have Jeff Bridges and Sally Field in it. I think there's two movies called Stay Hungry is what y'all getting screwed up on. Well, this is the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, I, yeah Arnold Schwarzenegger is listed this in This was the IMDb. one that made him famous. Are you, are you talking about Pumping Iron, Stan? 
The, yes, that's it. Pumping iron, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I am so sorry. Stan, I saying, my... Stan was saying, uh, stay hungry. I'm like, stay hungry. I, I know there's no, pumping somebody iron. Else, somebody else said, stay hungry first. And I said, yeah, okay. Because that sounds. New York. Yeah. Yeah, this is Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno face off in a no-holds-barred competition for the title of Mr. Olympia. That's the movie I'm talking about. Don't Don't watch Stay Hungry. Yeah, watch Pumping Iron. I don't see that on here. Pumping Iron came out in 1977. This is the movie you need to watch if you want to know about Schwarzenegger. Why isn't it on his IMDb list? No, but I'm sitting here looking at it on IMDb right now. Which which movie, Sandra State? Stay Hungry's on here, but I don't see Pumping Iron on Schwarzenegger. Pumping high Iron should be like the first thing you did. First thing that's on here is Hercules in New York. Well, he's in Pumping Iron. Well, let me look up Pumping Iron. That's yeah. weird that he and wouldn't add that on there. Since clearly we had all been mistaken about what we thought we had seen with Schwarzenegger in it, both of you need to watch Pumping Iron. Oh I've already God. seen Pumping <laughs> I think you need to go see it again, pal, because you called it Stay Hungry. No, you did I that, and I was confused hungry. the whole time. <laughs> Who said stay hungry first? Because it wasn't stay me. hungry. Okay, it's Sandra's fault. There we go. <laughs> God, we're all a bunch of idiots. <laughs> this this is just more of an argument for virtual Sandra. I tell you, <laughs> virtual Sandra would have never suggested the wrong movie title. <laughs> <laughs> no, I knew what I was talking about. The one that was filmed in Birmingham. <laughs> well, you kept saying that, and I thought there was no way in hell this movie was filmed in Birmingham. <laughs> this movie was filmed everywhere, and it, Birmingham was not, not one of those places. It's not on his list. Then you're just going to have to write the people at IMDb a letter, because if you look at Pumping Iron, the documentary, 1977, he is the first one listed. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lou Ferrigno, Maddie Ferrigno, Victoria Ferrigno, all the little Ferrignos. <laughs> all the little Ferrignos. <laughs> I guess we would call them Ferrignots. <laughs> I guess because it's not a movie. They say it's a documentary. So that yeah, that he's playing himself in that. Well, I would recommend. So I would recommend <laughs> to both of you. I'm going to watch Armadillo <laughs> as per Albert's recommendation. Awesome. But it, awesome. Uh, possum. I'm going to watch Possum. I don't know what Armadillo is, but it ain't, it ain't no Possum. It's a movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno, oh, and it was filmed in Trustville, Alabama. Possum? <laughs> yeah. No. I would recommend watching Kaylee Cuoco and at least the first three episodes of Stewardess. No. I thought it was funny. I'm I going to watch the Mandalorian before I watch that. I would greatly, and the readers at home, and the readers, <laughs> the listeners at home would greatly appreciate it if you caught up on Mandalorian too. As a matter of fact, we go so far as to have an email from somebody I'm not going to name. It says, please tell Sandra to get her head out of the fish tank so you can finally talk about Mandalorian. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, we're going to talk about it next week, no matter what. That's right. Yeah. We'll do a big Mandalorian take. So there you go. Is it going to be ending next week? No. No, you got a couple of more episodes. Okay. I'd recommend watching The Stewardess, The Goes Wrong Show on Amazon Prime. I highly recommend all of those out there, especially all of those of you, Jody, and everybody else that have written in to me because I do not like Are You Being Served from the BBC. Watch 
the goes wrong show and tell me that that that's not infinitely funnier on Amazon Prime. It's also a BBC production. But yeah, if you've never watched the movie Pumping Iron, you do need to watch it. I'm not a fan of bodybuilding or anything along those lines, but the movie, the bodybuilding is secondary. It's the mind games that Schwarzenegger plays with everybody along the way. You will come out of this looking at Arnold Schwarzenegger in a completely different way. I like when he's like eating breakfast with Rigno's parents. <laughs> and Prigno sit, sitting at the table with him, and they're just like swooning over Arnold. Yeah, and he did that on purpose. I mean, he yeah, was like, and Lou Frigno might as well be the size of an ant in that scene. Man, Schwarzenegger, like you said, smartest person in the room. Okay, that's going to round things out for us this week. We greatly appreciate you joining us. Thank you for our continued wonderful audience score and ratings. It continues to climb every week. Thank you so much. Again, I'd like to take this opportunity to tell any United States government agencies, I have no idea why we do have two consistent listeners in Russia. I know why. I just hope. I'm just hoping that why are they like your cousins or something? <laughs> no, my cousins live in Blunt County. Well, why do we have two listeners? I'm not complaining. Look, you're listening to us in Russia. Welcome. Thank you. I'm just hoping that this is not some sort of clandestine thing or anything. No, no, it's just Russia being Russia. <laughs> just Russians being Russian. Okay. Thank you. Our audience they're, is, they're, is. They're probably Namor fans. Yeah, that was my first thought, too. <laughs> Clearly, they're Namor fans. They're probably on some sub in the middle of the ocean or something like that. <laughs> yeah. 90% of our listeners clearly <laughs> Namor fans. Namor fans. They get our podcast through hand-crank radios. <laughs> it's just some ac- accidental signal that somehow they pick it up. Well, anyway, thank you all for listening. We cannot thank you enough. Please, if you haven't yet, give us five stars. That does help us. And subscribe, 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 because you don't know what we'll be posting when. Again, I'm having trouble with pull lists, but we'll be correcting that soon. Got any questions? Let us know how you feel. Talk to us about anything, anything at all. We love hearing from you. Kingdom Casts, that's Kingdom, C-A-S-T-S, at gmail.com. Kingdom Comics at gmail.com. Kingdom Casts and Kingdom Comics on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So follow us in those places as well. Talk to us about anything. We love hearing from you. We really do. We've got a Christmas special coming up. We've got a Christmas special about Christmas specials. You see, that's very meta. Of us, other is it, you know, is it though? <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's not that we have a Christmas special; it's that we have a Christmas special about Christmas specials. It's called making lists, Stan. <laughs> like it's not it's not new. We didn't invent that. <laughs> you don't know trying that. To pop our bubbles here. Yeah, that's all right. Oh, that's I'm, right. I'm pretty sure I know that we did not invest tier list of Christmas specials, Albert. I'm the one that gets to say bah, bah, bah humbug. <laughs> no, the inventor of lists was David Letterman, was it not? <laughs> no, it was Jimmy List. Jimmy List. Yeah. Jimmy List, when he needed to make a... Uh, never mind. I don't know where we're going with that joke. <laughs> he needed to make a list. He had to invent it. He just named it after himself. <laughs> a concept... <laughs> A consecutive a consecutive ordering of words, and he didn't have anything to call it. <laughs> I'll call this the list. <laughs> well, it was thank a you list all. of people with the last name List, which is why he called it the list, because it was just the list of list. 
Yeah, I think the joke's dead now. Is it? Is it though? <laughs> Thank you all again for listening. We love having you. Just let us hear from you, and we'll be back next week, hopefully with Pool List posting after 10 p.m. for the first time in three weeks on Monday night. And then again, Thursday or Friday of next week, we'll post our regular broadcast. Sandra, you got anything to say to him? Um, wow, it's uh, like, damn, how dare he put me on the spot? I'm sorry, but I'm I, I've gone cookie. back and I've reviewed the previous <laughs> podcast, and we do this every damn podcast. <laughs> okay, I do have something to say. We're at the last month of the year, so let's just be nice to each other. I know it's a stressful time, Christmas coming up, the, the coronavirus, all that other awful stuff. So let's just be nice to each other. It's too late for that. <laughs> It's way too late for that. That was Sandra pretending like she never wore a MAGA cap. Albert, <laughs> do you have <laughs> Albert, do you have anything to say to him? Never wore a MAGA cap. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, because we'll just do the opposite of it. <laughs> well, that was it then. Oh, Tell wait, him wait, I do have I do have something to say. Oh, oh you do? Yes. <laughs> Don't forget to get your copy of King and Black Namer next week does electra dress up as name if electra dresses up with namor has namor next week i'm there <laughs> lord <laughs> albert did you have anything to say <laughs> electra's gonna dress up as nanny from hellions <laughs> oh god <laughs> ruin it for us why don't you all right everybody tell them good night good night good night talk to y'all next week be safe Kingdom Casts is owned by Kingdom Comics Incorporated and produced by Stan Daniel and Albert Marsh. No part of this program may be reproduced, replicated, or replayed without permission. Special thanks to Sandra Swindle. Also, thanks to our content contributors, Jason Bean, Tim Bryant, Denise Daniel, Josh Duke, Alex Fitzpatrick, Charles Hickey, Allison Marceau, Mark Adam Miller, and Contrita Olstead. Logo designed by Geoffrey Gwynn. Edited by Stan Daniel. Kingdom Casts is copyrighted 2020. All rights reserved. Mr. <laughs> 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 <laughs>